0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 1, Episode 3, the second part on the history of the King James Version of the Bible. Last week, I covered the history leading up to the translation, gave a brief biography of a few of the men involved, and covered the rules dictated by King James. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm delving into the actual translation process, so I'll pick up where the panels began the actual translation. The six groups worked separately, and once their work was complete, it was sent to the other panels for comment and revision. The chief members of the six panels then met to make final decisions on all suggested revisions. While I do not know much Greek nor Hebrew, I can do a little rough math. The King James Version has just under 1,200 chapters, a number of which, of course, does not include the apocryphal books. That means, on average, given the number of translators... A single translator was responsible for translating 30 chapters, and some of you think it's very hard to just read the Bible. Think about how hard it must have been to handwrite it. No laptops, no typewriters, no online translation engines, only unforgiving ink, expensive paper, and poor lighting. Oh, and the plague. The bubonic plague. You know, the one carried by the fleas on rats. And when the town crier called for the people to bring out their dead in London, about a quarter of the population was carted off. It was such a lovely moment in history. And I'm sure the translators of Exodus 9 and Revelation 16 saw no humor, but maybe even similarities to their current situations. And let's not forget that the man who ordered the work, your boss, the king, the head of both state and church, participated in literal witch hunts. No pressure there. Fun times indeed. A quick step into a rabbit hole. In 1599, before becoming the King of England, but while King of the Scots, James wrote a book titled Demonology. No joke. That was the actual title. Demonology. And as a published author on the subject, I guess that would make King James a demonologist. I'll post a picture of the cover of this book on the podcast's Facebook page. In his book actually a series of three books structured in the form of a dialogue between two characters. He voiced his approval of witch hunting. The book was also reported had provided the background material for Shakespeare's Macbeth. You really can't make this stuff up. Another weave in the fabric of history. And thou shalt hear about Shakespeare again, before the clock ticketh another score. And yes, I did purposely murder Old English. I mention all of this, not because I want to disparage this version of the Bible, but because to me, at least, it's really interesting. Speaking only for myself, I cannot really judge his book because there is no possible way I could completely understand the cultural context in which it was written. Not to mention that none of us are perfect, even the most prolific of the New Testament writers. Remember that Saul, turned Paul, took an active role in the stoning of Stephen, reputed to have been the first Christian martyr. More on that later, but I need to step out of the hole and back to the topic at hand. The version's translators took into consideration several pre-existing translations, specifically the Tyndale New Testament, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and even the Reims New Testament, a Catholic Translation. From 1605 to 1606, the scholars engaged in private research, and from 1607 to 1609, the work was assembled. While it has been acknowledged that various pre-existing translations contributed to the King James Version, researchers have found that William Tyndale's work was heavily relied upon. Within the context of history, this is quite ironic, considering that Tyndale was strangled, then burned at the stake for heresy and after angering the English king Henry VIII. Of course, a few years after Tyndale was executed, Henry VIII ordered Tyndale's Bibles into the churches in England. But I'm getting ahead of myself. A 1998 scholarly analysis concluded that Tyndale's words make up about 84% of the New Testament and 75% of the Old Testament books translated by the panels. The expenses of the work were not borne by the king, who claimed he was too poor. Yes, you heard right. The king was too poor to pay for the work he ordered. Instead, voluntary contributions from bishops and others, who were apparently better off than King James, financed the endeavor. To his credit, I guess, the king rewarded the translators by giving them better titles and occupations as they became available, and also since he was the head of the church, by ecclesiastical promotion. When the translators finished their work, one copy was sent from each of the three locations to London, where two translators from each location, six total, revised it for the final time. Dr. Miles Smith then penned the preface titled The Translators to the Reader, where he stated that the translators worked from the former translations diligently compared and revised. In their address to the readers, the translators themselves say, Truly, we never thought from the beginning... That we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better, or out of many good ones, one principal good one. Dr. Smith and Bishop Wilson superintended the work as it passed through to the printing press. However, not everyone at the time was open to the new translation. There were some from the more conservative members of other churches, outside of the Church of England, who resisted publication of the King James Version. These were unwilling to accept anything rooted in the official Church of England, or produced under the auspices of the king. The work was made available to the public in 1611 in a folio form, about 17 inches tall and 15 inches wide, and weighing nearly 30 pounds, just under 14 kilograms. Its size demonstrated the intent for it to be used primarily on the pulpit, to which it was chained. After all that work, I guess they didn't want it to end up on eBay. My thought concerning its mammoth size, and this is purely speculative, is that someone dropped it from the second or third floor, and when it landed, they all thought it sounded like an A. Two editions of that large Bible are recognized as having been produced in 1611, and there were several differences between the two. First, the two editions had distinctively different covers, but it has also been speculated that in some instances these covers were interchanged. One cover was woodcut, similar to what had been used on the earlier Bishop's Bible, and the other was a refined copperplate engraving. I'll post a photo of the cover on the podcast's Facebook page. They each also had errors and wording peculiarities. For example, one edition has Judas instead of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 verse 36. Oops, that's not a minor error. The other has a part of a verse repeated in Exodus chapter 24, verse 10, forming what printers have dubbed a doublet. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 16, one copy reads Emorite, spelled with an E, and the other reads Amorite, spelled with an A. In addition, they each were distinguishable by their wording of Ruth 3.15, the first edition reading, He went into the city, where the second reads, She went into the city. The difference has led these two to be known informally as the He and She Bibles. Most of these errors are understandable, except maybe for the confusing of Jesus with Judas, since versions of the Bibles in all the early editions were constructed using printed sheets originating from several different printers, and subsequently there is considerable variation within the editions. That same year, 1611, the New Testament was issued, and this is your word of the day, in duodecimal form, in plain, modern English, not the band. This is a page of paper about 4 and one-half inches wide and 7 inches tall, much more portable than the 30-pound version. In 1612, the entire Bible was issued in octavo size, about 6 inches wide by 9 inches tall. These were produced so individuals could have their own personal copy of the Bible. At the time of its printing, the King James Version became known as the Authorized Version, as it was designated to replace the Bishop's Bible as the official version for readings in the Church of England. However, no records of its actual authorization exist. The version was probably affected by an order of the Privy Council, the King's version of an advisory cabinet, but unfortunately the records for the years 1600 to 1613 were destroyed by fire in either January 1618 or 1619. Also, after its printing, the King's printer issued no further editions of the Bishop's Bible. So, officially authorized or not, if you wanted a new Bible in England at the time, this is the one you got. In the first half of the 18th century, the King James Version was the primary edition used by the English-speaking non-Catholic churches, in fact, it was so dominant that the Roman Catholic Church in England, in 1750, printed a revision of the 1610 Douay Reims Bible. This version was published by Richard Chandler, and was much closer to the King James Version than to the original Douay Reims. After printing and distribution, the Anglican Church's King James Bible took decades to become more popular than the Protestant Church's Geneva Bible. And, in one of the great ironies of history... We now find that many Protestant churches today embrace the King James Bible exclusively as the only legitimate English language translation, even though when completed it was not designed to be a Protestant translation. Indeed, it was printed to compete with the Protestant Geneva Bible, and it was printed by authorities who throughout most of history were hostile to Protestants to the point of executing them. It is worthwhile to note that after England broke from Roman Catholicism in the 16th century, the Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church, continued to persecute Protestants through the 17th century. During this time, the Puritans and Pilgrims fled the religious persecution of England to cross the Atlantic and start a new free nation in North America. And in doing so, they took with them their precious Geneva Bible and rejected the King James Version. Therefore, the societies that would eventually become the United States were founded upon the Geneva Bible, not the King James. So that's what you read today, when you pick up a copy of the King James Version, right? Well, not exactly. You see, the original printing was made before English spelling was standardized, and when printers, as a matter of course, expanded and contracted the spelling of the same words in different places, so as to achieve an even column of text... It was their version of text justification. For example, they substituted the letters U and V interchangeably. Punctuation was relatively substantial and differed from current standards. Further, when printers needed to save space, they would use ye for thee, use an A topped with a tilde for an or m, and use an ampersand for the word and. And a few times they inserted words when they thought a line needed to be padded. By the mid-1700s, there had become a wide variation in the printed text of the version, along with an unbelievable buildup of misprints, to the point that the version had become what many contemporaries considered to be shameful. Therefore, the universities of Cambridge and Oxford both sought to update the standard text. First to print was the Cambridge edition of 1760, the result of 20 years' labor by Francis Paris. The 1760 edition was reprinted unaltered in 1762 and in John Baskerville's folio edition of 1763. Oxford produced their own version in 1769, which was edited by Benjamin Blaney, though there were relatively few changes from Paris' edition, but which became the Oxford standard text. Both Paris and Blaney sought to remove the elements of the 1611 and subsequent editions that they believed were due to the choices of various printers, but they also used most of the revised readings of the Cambridge editions of 1629 and 1638. They undertook the enormous task of standardizing the variation and punctuation in spelling of the original, making many thousands of minor changes to the text, and each also introduced a few improved readings of their own, Stop the presses. Okay, you have to know that I've been waiting to work that phrase in. But yes, you heard correctly. They inserted their own phrases. And some of the updates appear to alter the apparent sense of the original phrase. For example, the original 1611 text of Genesis 2.21 read, In-stead. That's the word in, then a space, followed by the word stead, meaning in that place. It was changed to read, instead, one word, meaning, as an alternative. Overall, it seems that Blaney utilized a 1550 edition of the Textus Receptus, instead of the later editions of Biza used by the translators of the 1611 New Testament. Similar to the 1611 edition, the 1769 Oxford edition included the Apocrypha, but Blaney usually removed cross-references to the books of the Apocrypha from the notes within the Old and New Testaments, or those had been provided by the 1611 translators. In total, Blaney's 1769 translation differed from the 1611 text in approximately 24,000 places. Since 1769, a limited number of additional changes have been included in the Oxford Standard Text. For a while, Cambridge continued to print Bibles using the Paris Text, But the market for that version waned, while it grew for Blaney's version. Therefore, they began to move towards absolute standardization and eventually adapted Blaney's work, but deleted a few of the idiocentric Oxford spellings. By the mid-1800s, nearly all printings of the King James Version were derived from the 1769 Oxford text, primarily omitting Blaney's notes and cross-references, and frequently excluding the Apocrypha. Since the 19th century, the King James Version has remained almost completely unaltered, and due to improvements in printing technology, it was produced in very large editions for mass sale. The version maintained its popularity through the first half of the 20th century. New translations in the second half of the 20th century displaced its 250 years of dominance, and we will begin with those in the next episode. And now, for a little, perhaps entertaining tangent... Did William Shakespeare serve King James as a writer for the version? The reasons this legend developed are many, and at some points very complex, and quite frankly, many of them are quite beyond the scope of this podcast. But the reason this rumor continues to live is quite simple. Proponents point to Psalm 46 and allege that Shakespeare slipped his name into the text. The simple story is something like this since Shakespeare was born in the year 1564, he would have been 46 years old in 1610, when the finishing touches were being put on the version. In the King James Version, if you count down 46 words from the top of Psalm 46, not counting the title, you read the word shake. Then, if you omit the word selah and count 46 words from the bottom, you find the word spear. Go ahead and pause the podcast and look it up. Unless, of course, you are driving, then I guess you'll just have to trust me. The theory is that Shakespeare must have tinkered with the text and added his signature. How else could one account for all those 46s to work out quite so well? As if that were not enough, William Shakespeare is an anagram of Here I Was, like a psalm. But reality, as usual, is not quite that simple. History has preserved the names of the roughly four dozen King James Bible translators. In fact, except for a few political appointments, all the translators were well known linguists, considered the very best scholars of ancient languages, such as Hebrew and Greek, but also Aramaic, Syriac, Coptic, and Arabic. Many were also excellent writers. But they were chosen for a different reason. The translators were not concerned with what we think of as literary style and they undoubtedly were not striving to construct a lasting work of English prose. Their charge, from the king himself, was to produce the most accurate English translation possible of the Bible. Remember the 15 rules? History has captured that their effort involved countless hours of disputations of the smallest details of language. Grammar, vocabulary, syntax, comparison of words, verses, clauses in the ancient languages, as well as contemporary translations in European languages, and previous English Bibles including Tyndall, Coverdell's Great Bible, Geneva, Bishops, and Reims. There were also discussions of ancient history, theology, and archaeology. Since literal accuracy was the goal, prose took a back seat. In addition, Shakespeare, according to scholars, was not well-versed in Latin nor Greek. By my personal standards, Shakespeare's Latin was pretty good. He just wasn't remarkable as a scholar on the subject. There is scant evidence, though, that Shakespeare had anything beyond grammar school Greek, and likely no Hebrew at all. And remember, Psalms was translated from Hebrew. Therefore, he did not possess the basic skills necessary for Bible translation, especially that of Psalms. He was also not a member of the clergy, and since many of the clergy of the period considered what we refer to as playwrights and actors to be morally equivalent to brothel keepers, it's almost inconceivable anyone would have considered him as a candidate for the translation team. Well, almost. In addition, although Shakespeare's works in the King James Bible have been acclaimed as the greatest examples of English literature since at least the Victorian era, scholars do not consider them to be similar. Specifically, Shakespeare wrote acceptable prose, but he more often wrote in verse, with the metaphorical density of his language and his invention of words and idioms setting him apart from other playwrights. But on the other hand, the King James Bible is entirely in prose, and generally avoids complex metaphor, except possibly for the parables, but those were also literally translated. Further, the vocabulary of this version of the Bible is extremely limited. To a modern layperson, the King James Version sounds like Shakespeare, but only on the surface. It's written with a vocabulary modern speakers do not use, and in a style they're completely unaccustomed to. To a linguist, the language, syntax, and structure of Shakespeare and the King James Version aren't even close to being similar. But the final nail in the coffin of connection is quite simple... The one piece of evidence that forms the basis of the entire legend is the word use and word count. But this concept has many problems. First, the 46 count from the end of the chapter has to leave out the word Selah. It's not a word from the actual psalm, but an indicator of performance, of which even modern scholars are unsure of its meaning. Yet, there it is on the page, and if you include it, the word spear is 47 words from the end, not 46. Furthermore, and most importantly, Shake and Spear are in many earlier English Bible versions as well, in roughly the same places, between 45 and 47 words from beginning and end. Wait, stop the record, just for emphasis. The words were in earlier translations, in the same places, translations that predate Shakespeare's birth. The plausibility is quickly evaporating. And for the anagram? Well... I guess his mother was in on it, too. That's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I dive into the new revised standard version. As I mentioned last week, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. Comments, questions, and essentially any correspondence can be sent to comments at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the term Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.